Hello ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and we are coming at you from the wonderful Impala Films headquarters in sunny Southend-on-Sea to bring you the latest episode of Second Take Cinema. As always, I am your host, Jamie Evans, joined by Rory Jocelyn. Hello! Cyberpunk Studios. From Cyberpunk Studios. (laughs) Mention me. Make me feel pretty. <laughs> so today we are getting in our little time machine and we're going back in time yeah. to uh, 1992 for a little known science fiction action cyberpunk. horror it's a cyberpunk kind of a comedy kind of a whodunit kind of a every fucking genre known to man movie. <laughs> Uh, Just say cyberpunk, because it's definitely in that genre. Yeah. Starring, ironically though, that is the one, um, that's the one genre not listed on the Wikipedia article. Yeah, I don't, so, some, um, some companies don't use cyberpunk as a genre. Oh no, no, but I've seen it listed as a genre on Wikipedia for yeah, other yeah. films. Just not for this one for some reason. How strange. But yeah, so... This film stars Rutger Hauer and Kim Cattrall, um... Can you guess what it is, kids? Probably is it not. Sex in the City with Rutger Hauer. <laughs> Probably, yeah, Sex in the City with Rutger Hauer in it, yeah. That would be amazing. That would be good. Um, this, ladies and gentlemen, is split second. So, lights, camera, action. It's time for a second take. So yes, today we are talking about a film that I think it's fair to say most people haven't heard of. Uh, it's definitely one that kind of it's a cult hit. hasn't lingered in the public consciousness as some movies do. Mm. Um, this is Split Second from 1992, directed by Tony Malum for the majority, mm. but as we will learn when we talk about the production, also kind of sort of directed by Ian Sharp and written by Gary Scott Thompson. It's a co-production between the United States of America and the United Kingdom. Stars Rutger Hauer, Kim Cattrall, Alistair Neil Duncan, Pete Posselwaite, the late great, Ian Dury and Alan Armstrong. It was shot for a budget of $7 million and only grossed $5.4 million at the box office. So not exactly what you would call a hit. Um, its reception wasn't great either Lawrence Cohn or Lawrence Connor Variety said Split Second is an extremely stupid monster film boasting enough violence and special effects to satisfy less discriminating video fans Chris William Chris Willman of the Los Angeles Time wrote it's hard to think of a less satisfying creature feature in recent memory than the simply terrible Split Second where Stephen Holden of the New York Times called it Fairly dull. <laughs> um, I think those are a bit overly harsh, but well, I can, I can well, kind of, we'll, we'll get to that. Here's a harsh one for you. Doug Broad of Entertainment Weekly called it utterly soulless and imitative. Uh, um, in Time Out, I don't think you could call it soulless. Imitative, no, I, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, That's what I was going to say. It, it, it imitates a lot of other films, but I would, yeah, I don't think I would yeah. call it soulless. Uh, and lastly, in Time Out London, Nigel Floyd wrote, This derivative eco-horror movie recycles dozens of disposable plots. Mm-hmm. However, largely due to the film's unintentionally hilarious nature and well-respected performances by the cast, the film has since developed a cult following. See, and that just... is the most accurate of the lot, yeah. I think, because it is derivative. It does have some good performances, though we'll get to those individually as we go. Um 
and it does have a cult following. Yeah. This has got a special edition released by Arrow Films, uh, which actually this is the, the version we watched was ripped from um, because it, it, it because it knows they know they can yeah. sell it. And just a bonus little fun fact for you: Belgian grindcore band, whatever the fuck grindcore is, Belgian grindcore band aborted used an image from this film as the cover of their first album, "The Purity of Perversion." Anyway, this was an entry by Rory. You chose this one, yes. so why don't you tell us a little bit about how you first came across Split Second and why you chose to give it a second take? Sure. Uh, so I did not watch Split Second when it was current because I was six. Uh, so it was definitely not the time <laughs> to be watching an 18 rated movie. Um, I watched this actually only about two, three years ago, maybe four at the most, but I think it was only about two or three years ago from, a, I borrowed the Blu-ray from a friend of mine. Um, I watched it. And I quite enjoyed it. He recommended it to me because he knows I like cyberpunk movies. Uh, and in general, like, cyberpunk movies are never normally high art. There's not many that will hit that barrier. Well, um, do, you, do you think that's a, just interrupting for a minute? Mm. Do you think that's a problem with the genre as a whole? Or just that there's not many people who do the genre well? Uh, I, I don't think it's. Ne- no, no, I don't think it's an issue with the genre per se. I think. The problem with the genre is that because it's largely, certainly after Blade Runner, it became largely a visual medium. Um, and that's certainly one of the things that I like about it is the visual side. But because it largely became a visual medium, uh, and basically it was arseholes, that's the, the, kind of the punk element of it. It was arseholes in dystopia, mit colourful light, <laughs> equals cyberpunk. And it, that's massively downgrading what cyberpunk actually is. But as a production budget that's an easy thing to achieve and because it lent itself well to the grotty nature of home video and uh, sort of you know video nasties almost in its appearance because you wouldn't expect it to look glossy it's a cyberpunk so because of that it also kind of, it largely emerged you had big budget ones which were Normally a little bit more high art, things like Blade Runner, which I know we're going to come to later in this series. Um, but in general, it was mostly low-budget films being made in this sort of genre. Because they went, well, it will look like shite because we haven't got the budget for high-end film reels and lighting, etc. But that's okay. This genre is basically, yeah, do that and it looks fine. And you ended up getting a lot of schlock. So, and because it was flavor of the week, I say flavor of the week, flavor of the decade from about 1983, 84, all the way up to the mid to late nineties, um, it started dwindling off in the nineties. You ended up with a lot of more basic, I mean, split second fits this. It's, it's low budget schlock, um, that sometimes tries to say something more insightful, but never quite gets there because essentially it's just, it's meat being ground and churned out. There's uh, a series called Trancers, which is a very good example of this as well. Uh, Very low budget. Um, It it had certain actors that people who follow cyberpunk-style genre films will know. But it's... To anyone who doesn't really like cyberpunk, I don't think it would grab anyone. Um, Split Second is a little bit different, though. Uh, So when when I saw this film... I know there's a little bit more thought being put behind it, and but it's very clear to see that it didn't get enough time in the writing room because it has a lot of really good ideas and there's a lot of really fun and interesting elements, but they never really gel. And I think it needed at least one more pass at the script to go, you know what, to make these things match up, we need to solidify this character this way, this character needs to do this a bit more, we need to focus on this and this area and move away from this, um, and then just really knuckle down on what the nuts and bolts of the script were. Because it went into production too fast, I think, it didn't have that time. Right. Uh, it only had so... three weeks in the writing room. Are you sure? I'm pretty certain that's what he I, said. Because I, th- I just read a thing saying he actually wrote the script in 1988, and it took ages for them to... That was a different script, pretty much. And so, yeah, I've got that on here. It, yeah, it was heavily rewritten. Yeah, so that was Pentagram. That was just a body cop horror movie. Um, but this this has those elements still in there, 
but there is a lot of rewrite, and you can tell sometimes characters drop out of their um, their story progression. So Rutger Hauer's character ends up having a sidekick in this film that he doesn't like, um, but that guy eventually starts to get into the same mindset as Rutger Hauer's character, starts becoming a bit more chaotic and a bit more psychotic. Um, and then there's a bit when they get to the final point where they're going to attack the creature at the end, and all of a sudden he goes back to his slightly more original, not quite all the way, but more to his nerdy side, like, uh, uh, oh, I don't know, uh, uh, and it's like, you've already seen more dead mutilation in dead bodies than this, you've already seen, like, you know, why are you regressing back a bit? And it's just for the sake of making Rutger Howe's character look a bit more hardy. But it's like, another pass at that script, you would have seen, I would hope, you would have seen that those two don't match up, and you would have either elevated him at the end, or slightly reduced his growth earlier in the film. Um, but yeah, so I watched it. I enjoyed it. I thought it was a good film, not a great film. Uh, again, great elements, not gelling. And but I enjoyed it. And I just when you came up with this idea of re-reviewing something and seeing if it still holds up, this was an absolute obvious candidate. You know, it's not, it's not a a treasured film. And it's not, I mean, it sounds, from the reviews you read, did you only pick the worst ones? Because that sounds like it's been slammed hell. That was all of them that were listed on the article. Wow. Um, but, I mean, over time, because it's got the cult following, it's obviously had something of a re-evaluation. Um, it, not necessarily to say that it's, you know, cosmic gold. Yeah, not necessarily, because we're going to that anyway, and obviously mm. that could be wrong. But it, the cult following is to do with it being so bad it's funny. Sure. But you can see that. You can see that. But I don't think the film shied away from being comedic. I think some people were trying to look for more depth than there was in it. And that's because the film had the potential for more depth. Um, I think we need to start talking about the film before I kind of reveal anything else. But essentially, I thought you'd enjoy it not because you'd think it was a sterling film. I thought you might enjoy it because of the disparate elements, the horror elements... Um, and you and I are quite different on taste, but one thing that I do know you love is horror, and while this isn't unique in horror, it's at least different. So yeah, what was your views on having finally seen it? As always, this is a spoiler warning for the audience, because uh, we will be going into plot details. If you, uh, if you don't want the plot spoiled for split second, then please turn off now, Okay. Got you. So this film is set in the then future, but we've passed it now, of 2008. Yes. Um, and due to, as the opening crawl tells us, due to years of human ignorance of global warming, uh, London is flooded because the Thames has risen. Yeah, the, um, the, the, the water level's risen across the world and yeah, the Thames is always um, overflowing. Well, you never see it overflowing. That's something that hasn't changed at all. There's still people in society ignoring global warming, so the film is still definitely accurate in that regard. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, but anyway, London is mostly flooded, except when the budget doesn't make that convenient and then it's yeah. just a little bit wet. <laughs> uh, um, they just got lucky and filmed on a rainy day yeah. uh rutger hauer plays a disgraced police detective yep. called harley stone yep uh you don't who... find out his first name is harley until late in the film though no i know um and this does a reveal like oh is that funny it's like it's just a name dude i know i think the, the reason it was meant to be stupid is because there's the harley Cause it's davidson... a girly name well no it's because there's a harley davidson logo on the wall behind him and yeah. there's a harley davidson motorcycle yeah. the problem is is Two years after this film, another film came out called Harley oh, Davidson and the Marlboro, and the Marlboro Man. Man, which had neither the backing of Harley Davidson nor Marlboro, and <laughs> somehow got away with it. Um, and that film stars uh, Mickey Rourke. Rourke. And the one of the Baldwin brothers no one cares to remember. Daniel Baldwin? It might have been Daniel Baldwin. Um, basically any of them except Alec. Yeah, yeah, basically. <laughs> anyone who's not Alec is one of the Baldwins that you don't care about. Um, so yeah, that was kind of always... Like that idea of, oh, it's Harley and he's got a Harley. Yeah. That didn't really bother me because I'd seen that film first. Yeah. But, um... uh, but basically, he's this disgraced police detective who is on the hunt for a serial killer who he seems to have a weird borderline psychic connection with. Uh, he can almost sense when the killer is near. Um, and at the start of the film, he goes to a underground nightclub. Um 
and while he's there, right under his nose, a partier at the club is murdered by this killer, tears her heart right out of her chest. Yeah. Um, and they later find it with a great big old chomp taken right out of it, don't they? Yeah, he, he, so later on, the heart is delivered to the police, uh, police office, police station, that Harley is arguing with the chief in. And, yeah, it's this freezer container. And when he opens it up, the heart is in there. Yeah. Um, and it's, he it's, gets it's signed for Harley Stone as well. Yeah. Uh, his police captain, chief, whatever you want to call it, pairs him with another detective called Dick Durvin. Which, Dick Durkin. Dick Durkin, sorry. Which <laughs> A much more adult name. <laughs> which might be the most porn star sounding name I've ever heard. For a dude who is the least porn star dude I've ever seen. Yeah, we uh, get a scene where he explains in uh, when he's talking to Harley Stone. It's like, I run five miles every morning. You run five miles every morning? And you, don't you have time to fuck or something like that? He's like, oh, every single night. And then I he, he, says, sounds like, he says, sounds like you need to get laid. Oh, and he's like, weird. I get laid every night. Yeah, and it's like... But we know there is literally nothing sexual about this man, apart from later, which we'll get to, which is quite funny. So he's basically a big old nerd, and he is paired with Harley with the idea that he will report back to the chief if uh, if Harley's getting out of control. Yeah. What actually ends up happening, as they have a few close encounters with the monster and the bodies start to pile up is he actually starts to become more and more like Harley. Yeah. Uh, also in the mix, you've got Kim Cattrall, Sex in the City's Kim Cattrall, yeah. who plays the ex-wife of Rutger Hauer's former partner, mm. who we see in a flashback died hilariously in the sewers so by being pulled under the water. Um, and... Also, what we weren't clear on until right near the end is that whether they'd been together themselves yeah, or not. It's not and actually revealed until the end that they had been a couple. It was like there's meant to obviously be sexual tension. Yeah. But you don't know if that's like they've been holding off because yeah. they are both connected to the dead guy or yeah. if, you know, they, but yeah, it's, it's, so, it's like, oh yeah, they, you know, you were with her and then you left her. As oh, always, right. as always being the sick perv that I am, let's, uh, let's start with sex as a topic of discussion. Um, Rutger Hauer and Kim Cattrall have no chemistry in this movie. Yeah. Like, it's, it might be the worst on-screen kiss I've ever seen. And they do it twice, at least. Mm. Maybe three times. That first one especially that first is... one is sloppy. It's sloppy well, work, it's, it's It's clearly meant to be like, oh, shit, I might die. I'm just going to go for this. Yeah. That's clearly what's going through Rutger Hauer's yeah. character's head. But it doesn't... But it just... There's no magnetism in it. No, it just feels like he kind of shoves his face at yeah, her. Have my face. Please. Yeah. But what makes this ironic Rutger, is... Rutger, how are you so bad at kissing? What makes this worse... What makes this worse is that he has much more chemistry, yes. sexual chemistry, with Dick Durkin. So he doesn't have any with Dick Durkin for the most of the film. And then when Dick starts to come around to his way of thinking... He's like he stroking his hair. Yeah. He's rubbing his earlobe. Yeah, they are always they're filmed... They're sharing cigars. Sharing cigars. They're, they're always filmed like they're, they're literally human. like yeah. no, almost nose to nose yeah. as if they're about to kiss. The Mac... Like, What's what really shows it off is um, like so. There's a bit where they're picking up guns. They're like, right, we're gonna fuck this creature up. Blah 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 blah. They're picking up guns from the police station, and as they're walking out, uh, Dick Durkin is now in the same headspace as Harley Stone. He's like, it must mm. be this, it must be this, and he's like calculating how the villain is working. Mm. And like <laughs> Harley's like with him, arm around him. There's been no contact at this point other than like you know ribbing or taking the piss or hurting each other at this point now he's got his armor yes yes tell me more tell me more and they're walking along and they're sharing a cigar and it's obviously done for comedy which is fine it works as a piece but not with the whole of the film it's it's the rubbing the earlobe that did it for me that was later that's an incredibly yeah that's in the sewer that's when they are well they're after the creature when he first grabs his ear i was like oh he's doing that thing like that a mum does to a kid where it's like yeah come here you little shit but it's not but he he then slits this stroking his earlobe and hey you know what we've already said the film is imitative fuck it 
lean into that better movie. Yeah, I've never seen a, a gay cyberpunk detective thriller before. Yeah, I have uh, to say, I, I think that's something that is often overlooked, and it's probably because I don't think it was intentional and somehow got in there. Either that, or Rutger Hauer made a decision that mm. he didn't inform the director of, mm. maybe because it's split between two different directors. But it's a very strange way, because the script obviously has nothing in it that would insist that these two have any gay connection. Yeah. But for whatever... And it's not necessarily that the other guy is doing it, because he's just acting his part. It's very much something that Rutger Hauer is doing. Yeah. So Rutger Hauer makes some interesting choices in this film. Yeah. Because his character is very inconsistent. He seems to alternate between being ultra-macho, cigar-chomping. You could almost imagine Schwarzenegger playing, like, peak yeah. Schwarzenegger playing this role. It's um, You know, yeah, he's got the great big leather coat. He's walking around with the cigar and the sunglasses, and he's basically like, fuck everyone else, I'll do what I want to do, blah, blah, blah. And then these moments of him just leaning into the whole nuttiness of it all and being like, they're here, they're here, and stuff like that. And yeah, where he goes to sort of the, the more madness side of mm. Harley Stone. But there's, there doesn't seem to be any, far be it for me to criticise him, of course, but there doesn't seem to be any graduality between, any gradient no. between those two states. It ping-pongs from one to the other. Yes. There's something that happens quite a bit in this film, is people ping-pong from one to the other. A pop. Kim Cattrall is quite consistent, mm. but she doesn't... But also ha- dull. Yeah, she doesn't have a huge graduation for her character, really. No. She has like a scene where she's like, you know, she's always kind of the 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 ex lover of him, really. The one bit she gets, which is a little bit deeper than that, is after she's been bitten and she's like washing herself clothed in the bath because she's having a bit of a breakdown because she keeps hearing the monster. That works well, though. That is also the point where the gay bit sort of comes out most because that's a bit where he kisses her leaves to talk to dick and all of a sudden you're like hang on there's way more chemistry with these two than there was in that bathroom what the fuck um but yeah there was uh, also the the police chief was good yeah i like the police chief he needed to just accept that he was balding though and not try and keep that hairline going because it's i mean it's so like the top of his forehead is so far back it's, it's like, dude, just accept your boarding, man. Um, but yeah, he once he finds out, like, because he's basically been the straight laced guy the whole time. So, like, yeah. damn it, Stone, you gotta do things by the book. You gotta da, blah, 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 the whole time. And then it gets to the end when Dick Durkin is now joining in. They're doing the cigar sharing, and it's like, oh, this is how it's working. He basically explains that the monster is basically reincarnation of Satan in some way. And then as the two walk off, you, the camera just watches. The captain going, oh, that's it, is it? How am I supposed to write a fucking report on that? And he just ends up having a fucking rant at people. Just walks past this random one and goes, yeah, and you. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, what the fuck? It's like, and what's interesting, this is, this is something that, I, again, I don't know if it was intentional or not, but would have made, if, it, if you were to do a remake of it, maybe we should do this later, but would be a more interesting element is the, the way that, Rutger Hauer's character, Harley Stone, how his psychosis starts to rub off on others. Because it rubs off on Dick Durkin to the point where Dick Durkin basically becomes like a lesser version of him. Yeah. And then at that last moment, he's finally managed to crack the captain and he's started doing it, walking around ranting like Rutger Hauer's character does. Yeah. It would be interesting. It's like almost a n- narcissistic spread out where he starts to influence others into being like him. That's... uh. But yeah, yeah, that might be giving the film a bit more credit than it deserves. It's definitely in the film. Mm. I just don't know if that was on purpose or whether or not that was pure coincidence. Yeah. The... My brain's just completely gone. Give me a minute. The just sticking with performances for a minute then, that's... Yeah, yeah. That's the first area we've chosen to talk about. It is a weird cast of characters. So this is a British-American co-production. It's nearly an entire British cast, apart from Kim Cattrall, who's American, I believe. Yes. And Rutger Hauer. I think he's. I think Rutger Hauer is Danish. Um, Rutger but Hauer. I think he's is most famous, Swedish, isn't he? Huh. Let's have a look. I think he's Danish. He's but Dutch. He, Dutch. Um, but he's most famous for being in American movies, and he's playing an American here. Um, 
Oh, blimey, Kim Cattrall was born in England. Oh, fair enough, I take it back. I but retract she's, my... She's got an American accent in this, though. Yeah. She's not playing an English person. Maybe oh, well. she's lost the accent by that point. I retract my statement anyway. Yeah. Um, the performances all kind of feel sort of larger than life and out of this world a little bit. Even in the smaller characters, um, like extras in the club are very sort of over the like the, I've been in nightclubs. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But this is like... Well, it's a strip club, really, isn't it? Well, yeah, it's like a weird strip club as well, because there's a girl in bondage outfit whipping her totters out mm. and shaking them about. I was quite appreciative of this scene. Yes, yes, uh, that was terrible. <laughs> I don't know how they... How, how they, dare they put this in my uh, film? No, it's disgusting. <laughs> um, <laughs> but even the other cops as well, like, the other cops seem very... Uh, everything's just a little bit heightened is what I'm trying to say. Yes, it's not and, naturalistic. No, and there's almost a cartoonishness to some of the bits. For example, there's a bit where Rutger Hauer thinks he can sense the monster and he goes running down this alleyway and he starts firing his gun into the air and then you get like a, like the clicking of like a hundred guns cocking yeah. as all these other cops' guns just enter the frame and surround him yeah. around the neck. It's a very cartoon image. Yeah, uh, I, I mean... I get the impression, and this this might just be, I don't know. I get the impression that if they'd made this as an anime, it would have been considered an amazing film mm. because genuinely the the things that this the things that this film gets wrong are generally given a free pass in anime. I find uh, it's no worse in its composite of disparate bits than a film like Akira. Mm. And Akira gets given this great blessing, this amazing film. Now, it was amazingly well animated, but I honestly, we, we'll come to Akira another time. I don't think the story holds up. Let's see, at least not the one in the anime. I've I do, I do believe Akira is on the list, isn't it? Yeah. But Split Second also doesn't hold together as well. I'm not, giving it, I'm not saying it's better than Akira, but I'm saying it's got the same problems as Akira. And yet Akira is given this whole, you know, this plinth mm. of amazingness to it. And Split Second is down here in the depths. And I do think it's the difference between what's expected between an animation and live action. Yeah. Um, for example, some of the bits that I liked, it, and sometimes they're small things, uh, the idea that London's flooded was actually quite an interesting choice. Yeah. Because it just made it more difficult for them <laughs> to actually film, because they had to flood everything whenever they yeah. wanted to shoot there. But the benefit of that meant the environments look unique, even in a... You know, even in a standard London setting. Yeah. And there were certain elements like uh, when Dick Durkin first sort of starts trying to chat to Harley outside and Harley's like basically drives away and his Jeep goes, follow me. And he does like a, a quick J turn in his truck and moves away. The splash of the water coming off the bottom mm. and splashing over Dick Durkin. Yeah. Those are little subtle details that A, didn't need to be there. But B, they add a lot to the to the vibe of the visuals that we're getting. Yeah. And in anime, I think that would have been appreciated more than it is because it's live action. Uh, where it's like, well, of course, you just filled it with water and it splashed. I was like, yeah. yeah, but in an animation, you would have given it praise for the fact that it's a unique yeah. idea. And you get some cool things like um, there's a few times in the film where water will be running from either under a door or down a flight of stairs. Yeah. Um, and that's very cool as well, because, I mean, it's one thing for it to be standing water, but when it's actually moving water as well, yeah. it's a little bit like, oh, right, I see. Uh, the only thing that lets the effect down is there are a handful of shots, usually the ones that are done near more busy streets or more recognisable parts of London, yeah. where they clearly weren't allowed to, you know, <laughs> you, could, you can't shut down Trafalgar Square for a day while you flood it and... Film here, <laughs> yes, um, which was a shame, but the, the, again, but it's not a big budget, budget film. film, yeah. No, they didn't have the budget for like if it was a Bond film, they probably would have done it. But all they would have look, nowadays they'd have CGI'd it. But certainly at the time, they probably would have shut down Travolta's way for Bond, but not for split second. They no, it for split second. Um, so as you've already said, the thing with this film is there's a lot of there's a lot of good elements in it that don't necessarily coalesce into a solid movie. Yes. Um, the biggest one of those for me is the tone. Yeah. Because the tone is all over the place. Yeah, sure. Um, and the film is at its best, actually, this film, is at its best when it is 
going the more buddy comedy route. Yeah. With... You can tell that's the bit that's had the most work behind it. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking particularly of the whole middle bit where Durkin starts imitating Harley. Mm. That is when the comedy was most working in the film. Yes. Because um, some of the bits before that don't work for me. No, so, they, so Durkin comes across as a bit too cartoonishly nerdy mm. or too cartoonishly posh. Yeah, and, and Rutger Hauer's too cartoonishly angry. Like, yeah. there's, there's the bit, isn't there, where they pull up to a crime scene and Durkin goes to get out and Rutger Hauer just kicks the door shut. Yeah, which is funny. But it's, it, yeah, it's like you're not going to start off a, a good investigation this way and there is no point to it. It wasn't like, a kick the door shut. Why are you being a dick to me? Well, you were going to step in that. Mm. It was just to be a dick. Yeah. Um, th- they come from too far and extreme at the beginning. Like the way they meet up in the middle is perfect. That bit's fine. But because you are, you're all right. You're talking about a cartoonishly insane, sort of dirty Harry imitation. Yeah. Meeting a, a cartoonishly off the books fucking posh white boy, wet behind the ears, quite literally in this film. <laughs> <laughs> and then just suddenly bomb. And then they're like the same. And it's like. It's a little bit too far of a drive <laughs> to get them to that point. Yeah. Um, I will so, point out one other actor before we move on. Okay, go ahead. Uh, there is... Uh, Tony Steedman is in this film. Now, Tony Steedman is... Uh, I only really know him for one other role, and I love him. And when I saw him, I was like, oh, It is you! Uh, anyone who's seen Bill and Ted, uh, for specifically the first one, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventures, he is Socrates, a.k.a. Socrates. And I'm like, it's Socrates! Is he not in the second one, then? No, no, he's not. Um, but uh, looking at his IMDb here, he is actually British, um, which I didn't know. Uh, it's, yeah, but cool. He was born in Warwickshire, apparently. Uh, he's, he's passed away now, unfortunately. He died in 2001. But uh, this was one of the f- uh, last films he did. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he was great at Socrates. <laughs> yeah. And it was great to see him again. You know, sometimes there's those smaller actors that, you know, they never had like Keanu Reeves style fame. But when you see him in a film, they just kind of warm your heart. Yeah. That's I Socrates. <laughs> so what do we think about the effects in this film? I think the gore effects are really well done. I mean, you'd know more than I would about that because you've seen a lot more horror movies. Um but they don't look particularly plastic or fake. Um, certainly, it avoids a lot of the main shite that we get in modern movies where a lot of it's CGI'd. This doesn't do that. It's all puppet work. It's all meat puppets or uh, practical effects and costumes. There are some bits that don't work quite so well. Um, but overall, I think they work quite well. What were your Again, I, I, I'll lean to your wider expertise in this field what do you think of the um, effects I, I didn't mind them i was quite glad i was quite glad to see that we weren't just killing victims off on off off of screen yeah. um you get the pretty cool effect with the girl in the bathroom when her heart's been ripped out um that happens a few times where it's people with their hearts missing so they're not the best effects i've ever seen but they, they're more than serviceable. The main effect that you get is the victims of the creature who have their hearts ripped out. That's yeah. the most common one. And you've got these fake prop hearts, and they're very cool as well. Everything looks suitably wet. Yes, it does. Yes, yeah. it does. And I don't mean just the environments. I mean, like, the meats and everything else that they have. Yeah. It's not like a lot of films, they're quite dry. And you, you, that's when you can tell it's a puppet more so than anything. The, the actual creature itself was a bit of a problem for me. Yes. Uh, when you're only seeing glimpses of it, I was fine. I was like, oh, cool. It's a big thing. It's got claws. Uh, that's all I've really seen of it, except in silhouettes. And then um, when you actually see it yeah. at the end. When you get it in full light. In full light, which to be fair isn't much. You only get one or two shots, I think, of it in yeah. full light. But one of those is like near enough a close up of it. Yeah, it it's got this skull that is just like a blunted down xenomorph skull. Yeah, complete with all the teeth. Yeah, so it's got it's what's shown early on is one of the when the heart is delivered into the police station for Stone, it's got a bite out of it. And it gets sent to the lab so that they can make a mould of what the, the tooth structure would be of the person who bit it, uh, thinking that it would be a human face. And then when it comes back, the mould is quite demonic looking. 
Like this, uh, more, more of a mandible, really, than anything. Big teeth. Yeah, huge teeth. Crisscrossing all over the place. Wouldn't actually be very practical. Um, but either way. And then when you see those teeth later on, yeah, they match. But the, because their head is, the head is basically a xenomorph head. You're right. They're, yeah, they're, just shortened. Just, yeah, slightly shortened xenomorph head. And teeth right at the front where you'd expect them to be on a xenomorph from Alien, if anyone really doesn't get the reference. Uh, but when the mouth opens, like yourself, I half expected a smaller mouth to come out. Yeah, there's, a moment, there's a moment where they fully <laughs> trick you into thinking that's what's yeah, going to happen. Yeah, oh, here it comes. <laughs> uh, but no, that doesn't happen. But it, it, it feels like it could, because this, this alien is just an amalgamation of everything else. Uh, now, according to the trivia on this film... The monster was uh, had, they only had three weeks to make it, so it makes sense to me that rather than inventing something wholly unique for this demon spawn Satan thing, they decided to lean quite heavily on established tropes. But either way, I, I could have done with something slightly more original. Yeah, I one hundred percent. When you get that close up on its mouth, I, I literally turned to you, didn't I? And I said, "I swear to God, if a little mouth comes out of this big mouth, I'm done. Yeah, yeah, I'm done." Um. <laughs> For me, I it, it is weird because on the one hand, so it, the setting is good. The setting works. The way it's shot works for the most part. Mm-hmm. I'm a fan of the color design. The uh, there's some bits where it's oddly chosen. There were bits I thought were going to turn out to be dream sequences because it's oddly soft uh, shot in soft focus. Yeah, but it's not. Uh, in terms of a visual look, though, it really like this film does not feel like a '90s movie. No. This feels like 1983 or '84. It feels like Terminator One era. Yeah, that's uh, so. I said this to you about the lighting. Is that there's something they do very successfully in this film i think because i'm i'm fairly certain it was on purpose which is to get the color the the color of white in this film basically imitates the white the white balance levels of the original terminator movie Mm. and i know that from james cameron's commentary on terminator some of the white when they're on the streets to get that lighting to look the way it does you can't do it the way he did anymore was because he shot in particular places underneath um certain street lamps and those street lamps used mercury to light right. themselves now mercury is uh considered a um, dangerous highly dangerous uh my granddad had some and you can get mercury poisoning can't you you can oh mate mercury is horrendous for you um he had it in a vial and he he had it for because he, he, he i don't know why he had it but he was left over so he for- could poison you one day when you, <laughs> when you made that one pun that was just too <laughs> annoying but he could be like take this you little shit <laughs> But yeah, he had it for, as a leftover from World War Two, And when my dad, when, when he passed away, my dad was like, well, maybe we can sell that somewhere or whatever. So to who? I don't a know, fucking but, serial killer? Well, so he, 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 we, don't, we didn't know. We didn't know much about Mercury. So he took it to an expert. I was like, like what, what would this go for? What's this used for? You know, what, why would my grandfather have had it? And you just said, yeah, that's considered radioactive almost. You can't, like, you can't sell that. That's a, you shouldn't even have it. Like, it's considered, a, it's illegal for you to even own it. So like, did take it off you? No. Um, I can't remember what my dad did with it after that. Uh, I don't think he's got it anymore because we've got no use for mercury. <laughs> he's kept um, it so he can kill you. Yeah. But anyway, they were using mercury lamps in the city that they were filming in and lighting so the Terminator would walk underneath these lamps. Right. And that would give the, for some reason, the mercury lamps would give off like this blue-white light. And they managed to do that, I don't think, because we didn't have mercury lamps in the UK, certainly not in London. And yet it has that same glowing blue-white white balance. Um, I'm very fascinated about how they did it, because uh, it's te- as you say, it's 10 years later, and they didn't have the f- practical props to create it. Um, maybe, maybe I'm guessing they, it's something they've done in post. Maybe they've just white balanced it deliberately white balanced it wrong yeah maybe maybe it's it, it i would be fascinated to know the actual answer because it could just be a, a case of balancing in post but i've not seen certainly now where uh with digital uh videography it's so easy to basically create color balance um you can create color balance uh what they call defaults uh and uh plugins to Lots. make that's it lots you can create lots to basically connect into your footage and make it look a certain way this is my bond style lot this is i want it to look like alien this is i want it to look like this but i've never seen the meme isn't it 
the there's the meme, isn't there, about um I don't know if you've ever seen it, but they they put a picture of Mexico, like a picture of actual Mexico. Yeah. And they go, Mexico in reality. And it, you know, it looks like a normal place. Yeah. And then it's Mexico in films. And there's about, there's still some about 10 different films. Yeah. All set in Mexico that have all used the same LUT to give yeah. Mexico that sickly yellow look that yeah. films always give Mexico. <laughs> Um, even Breaking Bad does it. I'm rewatching yeah. Breaking Bad at the minute, and when they do the flashbacks to Gustavo Fring in Mexico, it's notably more yellow orange. Yeah, yeah, they've got that yellow orange thing to go, which is re- it's really weird that at some point someone in Hollywood just decided that's what Mexico looks like on film. Yeah, and now that it's is not Mexico. What, yeah, because it's not what it looks like. No, like if I went to Mexico, I would fully expect everything to be yellowish. Yeah, and that's that's something that's quite interesting about modern cinematography is a lot of it is. Kind Color balanced in a way that is unrealistic, unnatural. It isn't the way it actually looks, but it's designed to give a specific vibe. Uh, and, and Mexico is a very basic version of that. But one that thing that's interesting in modern cinematography is, uh, have you heard of the, I think it's a three color rule. Right. So you have three primary colors that are in your shots and you'll have one, which is your main color one which is like your um, your edge colour for like your extra. And then you've got a third colour, which is like your pop colour, mm. uh, which is there to make something look a bit more vivid. And it works. It makes things easy to follow visually. I, uh, it makes things look a little bit too... A little bit too uniform for my liking. Cyberpunk yeah. wouldn't work with it because cyberpunk requires you to have neon colours flashing all over the show. Um, but... It is interesting that there is that difference. And I do wonder if there might be a lot to try and match this film. Um, though people probably ask, why would you want to make it look like an 80s film? But it's coming back, people. Like, it's already back. Nostalgia's been going for ages. Yeah, but the thing is, what people try and recreate with 80s nostalgia is the videotape look. So they'll film something on digital and then they'll put it in a post-production to give it like that videotape wobble mm. and like the, the distortion from VHS. And the snow. And- yeah, and th- they'll overdo the uh, the green and the red uh, that have oh, I can't remember what it's called. I used to know it off the top of my head. So I do apologise, but where you get red and green bleed yeah. at the edge of uh, objects and colours, and they uh, they do all of that, but that's TV. That's on and videotape. That's not cinema of the era. Yeah, and for some reason we don't try and replicate cinema of the era very much, which I always find a bit interesting and confusing because ultimately that's what people remember of. <laughs> the 80s um maybe or maybe it's because what a lot of these people who are now engaged in 80s nostalgia people who grew up during the 80s and probably didn't go to the cinema that often they probably their memories is watching things on vhs tape that's true which is why that's the look they try and imitate yeah so i mean yeah seeing terminator on blu-ray in as close as closer to its original cinematic look than you know videotape would that would not have been their first experience of Terminator. It would have been the VHS tape with the wobble and shit. Yeah. So yeah, maybe, maybe that's the reason. Yeah. But I'm uh, sorry, I've gone off on a bit of a technical. No, no, no. There, go ahead. But the I, I do find that fascinating. I, I, it is a it is a visual effect that I'd like to try in a film at some point. Um, it's certainly one that I'm interested in trying to. How do I get that? Um, the film definitely has. Um, again talking about how it's all these different things that don't quite gel is there's an almost in the middle bit there's an almost uh almost i want to say verhoven feel to the middle where it's almost you know he you know paul verhoven does this thing where he amps up violence yes in order to make it comedic, because it's pushing the limits of how yes. ridiculous it is. Well, that that's basically the premise of a lot of his film. Robocop had that. Um, uh, Starship Troopers. Starship Troopers yeah. is all that. That, yeah. mid, that middle bit where Rutger Hauer and I actually don't know who plays Durkin, but those two guys are literally just chomping cigars, loading up massive fucking Gatling guns, which Stokrake's uh, yes. mistakenly calls a shotgun. I'm like, that ain't a sh- I don't know it's jack about guns. It's not a shotgun, it's, it's clearly a chain gun. Yeah, I don't know jack about guns, but I know that's not a shotgun. Dick Durkin was played by Alistair Duncan. Alistair Duncan. Um, but yeah, there was this almost, almost Verhoeven, almost... 
Sam Raimi level of fuck it, let's just go funny with this. The problem is none of this works when you stitch it together because I definitely think, I don't know if you agree, there's no tension in the film. I was uh, never, hmm. I was never in suspense. I'd, um, I'd, so there's levels on that. I think I, I will agree. It's not, it's not like Wages of Fear style. Like you're, you're gripped at the edge of your seat. It. What I would say though is, it's not so lacking in tension where you're just sitting there going, "Well, when's the next fucking scene coming the, around?" No. It's you know, it it holds enough, but I think it could have done a lot better if the disparate elements gelled together more. The, the villain... So you were actually waiting on yeah. what... Because it does convincingly twist. It just, mm. for some reason... You are right, you're not sitting there going, oh my God, the well, twist! It, it never feels like there, as as he actually says, Rutger Hauer has a line where he says, we're not hunting it, it's hunting us. Yeah, that you, never hits with the weight it should. Yeah, you never feel that they are being hunted. Not like, say... John Carpenter's Halloween or or James Cameron's Terminator One, where you really feel this pursuit, and like every time Arnold Schwarzenegger turns up in that movie, you're like, oh shit, he's after them again. Or every time Michael Myers, you know, Laurie Strode looks out of her window and he's there standing in the garden, and you're like, oh no, he's coming to get her. You get this sense of like doom impending you don't really get that with this creature and that might be because you literally never really see it properly until the end um and it might be taking the idea of less is more a little too far actually yeah yeah i can agree uh what's interesting about the alistair the guy plays dick durkin is what he's been in since oh do tell um so not a lot of stuff that we necessarily would have seen, though he's had like bit parts. He's been in Highlander TV series Hercules. He's been in Xena Warrior Princess Babylon Five. He's uh, Sabrina the Teenage Witch, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Angel. Oh, who, who was he in Buffy? In Buffy, it's, again, it's he was in two episodes in the year two thousand as a character called Collins. Um, that would have been the third or fourth season. But right. either way, like again, he's he's been all these one-off kind of bit parts that are only in one episode, sometimes stretched to two. I'm guessing as a two-parter. Um, but after about two thousand and three, yeah, two thousand three onwards, mostly known for video games. Oh, and what's okay. strange is, is there's a lot of big ones. So Killer Seven, he was in. He's been in Rainbow Six Lockdown as a voice. Onimusha, which I know is big. He's the narrator and the archaeologist in Lara Croft Tomb Raider Legend. Uh, the 2006 Tomb Raider game. He's in Tomb Raider Anniversary. He's in Mass Effect. Mass Effect 2. Final Fantasy... Oh, God, what's that? <laughs> 14. <laughs> XIV, it's 14. Uh, he's been in... Yeah, he's, he's, been in, he's been in several Professor Layton games. Uncharted 3. Ooh, so Elder more of a voice Skyrim. actor now. Yeah, so he's... I mean, he's still in... He was in the... American Girl with a Dragon Tattoo as a character called Grieger. So he does do the odd... Um, sort of movie role but for the most part he's in a lot of and quite massive video games yeah. ratchet and clank he's in <laughs> i mean these are all big names in the video game world and I, I know that's not generally interesting to this particular audience but it is fascinating that he's been in big budget stuff yeah he's transitioned it, into that yeah yeah that sometimes happens though of course um, of course yeah, yeah sometimes they'll transition one way or the other um i think that uh what was my last point really um, what was I going to say? We talked about the comedic bits. We've talked about the setting. And the, the, the setting is nice, but isn't necessarily used to its full potential, possibly due think, to budgeting. What do you think the full potential would have been, or what would you have done extra with uh, that? Well, there should have been more scenes of the monster stalking them in the water. Yeah. Get some Jaws things going. Yeah. Al- almost like that bit in Aliens when Sigourney Weaver's rescuing Newt in the water-filled corridor, yeah. and you get like the xenomorph like moving behind her sort of thing. And just... Oh, I was going to talk about his apartment, that was it. Yeah. Um, we'll <laughs> come to that in a minute. Um, and to be honest, I... I would have done, and obviously I'm a completely different filmmaker, but I definitely would have had the water be a source of danger more. It's yeah. just kind of there. No one's ever in danger of the water. No, it's not, I, and it doesn't act. They keep saying that it's uh, because it's going to be high tide and the water's flooding, blah, 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 but there's never any danger of it rising. Yeah, there should be a bit like probably in the finale. Yeah, when they're it actually prob- in the subway. Yeah, that subway should like start flooding or yeah. something. Yeah. Um, 
I have a question actually on mm-hmm. uh, sort of we we <laughs> we tagged on the most likely unintentional gay themes in this, mm-hmm. but there is one that we haven't touched upon that I found intriguing uh, conceptually, whether whether it counts or not, or whether it's just a a plot thread that kind of never went anywhere. We as much as we've got Dick Durkin and Harry Harold uh, Harley Stone bromance let's put it that way when they get into the sewer like there's a lot of so harley's being uh, given sent a lot of stuff by the monster yeah. uh like the heart at the beginning and then he keeps on calling out to him and things like that and he gives him the gun and the handgun is his partner's old gun don't know how he recognizes it it's just oh, a handgun just quick sidebar before i forget that was a negative point yeah uh you eventually after the first flashback yeah. with harley you get revealed that the reason he's got this psychic connection is he's the creature scratched him and he's got those scars that yeah, scarred all the way they look on. fucking terrible yeah that is the one bit of makeup that really didn't work no they look awful it happened and i was like i know i'm not seeing what i think yeah. i'm seeing I think the problem they had with that, the mistake they made, was it looks like it's all one piece. And actually, they should have done each scar as a separate piece. It also isn't anywhere near where, in the actual flashback, it doesn't line up to where the creature actually scratches him. No. Because the creature reaches for his chest, but they're on his arm. Yeah, yeah, it didn't make a lot of sense. But I think, <laughs> anyway, sorry. No, that's all right. Um, but anyway, so we've got a lot of this connection, and then it's later stated that uh, the creature is not only take it, like taking the hearts and you know lives of the victims because it wants to absorb their power. Yeah, but it's also taking their souls. And then it's stated that the DNA they've managed to get off of the creature uh, isn't just a guy. It's the it basically the DNA of everyone. It's got Harley's it's DNA. Everyone yeah. it touches, yeah. and it's got the it's got the DNA of his partner. That's right? something I've just realised. You never find out where this monster comes from. Well, it's a demon from hell. But that's never clarified. That's only so, ever th- that's yeah, a yeah. theory that they have, isn't it? Well, because they they figure out that it's coming back is to do with the time of year. Uh, it's the year of the rat, and there's rats everywhere in London. Uh, it's uh, what was it? Not Taurus, Scorpio, and Scorpio happens to be the uh, star sign with the most connection to psychotic uh, psychotic people like Charles Manson and things like that. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. That's what the film says. That's not me saying all Scorpios are this, that, and the other, or that I believe in that bullshit. Um, but that's just what the film suggests. So it's and it's to do with the occult in that in that sphere. And that's obviously a remainder of the original occult storyline that before it went into this kind of pseudo sci-fi. Yeah. But so anyway, it's his old partner is in there, soul DNA, the works. It's all within this mm. monster, and it's using the you know the DNA. It's using the memories of his partner to lure Stone into the underground. That's why it captures the wife or the you know the love interest Kim Control yeah. and hangs her to break the circle of light and all this stuff. It's all to do with the occult thing, but it's using those things to bring Stone into the equation. Because it's got to complete the circle that Stone is part of. Now, one part of that that I'm going to question, this is the reason that I mentioned the gay thing, is there's all of this about, oh, come to me, you know, you, you, I rem- you remember me, blah, blah, blah. I've got to do this for my partner and my guy. And then when he gets into the tube train in the finale, the monster actually gets the jump on him. And drags its hand down his face. It's quite an iconic image. Yeah, it takes its... Well, I don't use but, the word iconic well, it, it's, for this film. I think that's the one that was used on the album cover. No, it's not. Is it what, not? What, the aborted album yeah, cover? Yeah, yeah. No, it's the first woman who dies with oh, a heart ripped. It? Yeah, I looked it up. Oh, okay, fair enough. Um, it's her laying in the bathtub with a heart ripped out. I've seen loads of stuff online that that's apparently iconic, but okay, fair enough. It's, um, it takes his glasses off, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, but yeah, and it's kind of weird because it's, it's got the jump on him. It could easily kill him. And it could have just slapped him really quickly because apparently it can move fast at what it's doing. But it just pours its head, hand slowly down his face, slowly removes his glasses because he didn't have glasses when he when uh, his partner was still alive. I think that's kind of what that is. And it's like this weird sort of slow stroking of his head. And it doesn't look like he's it's either wants to kill him or if it's going to kill him, it's going to kill him the way he remembers him. And that's kind of a bit weirdly romantic i i don't really know i appreciate the amount of thought you've put into it i think the actual my personal opinion the actual answer there is it's plot armor yeah i i agree with you but it's kind of interesting a lot of this film has this 
if you want to, you can look way more into detail than I think they actually plan to. Yeah. Which is where you get the bromance looking more like a romance and Kim Cattrall is being sidelined for mm. Dick Durkin. But it's very and, in your face, the Durkin thing. Like yeah. we said, it's not normal to just be sat stroking his earlobe. And... No, that was weird. Like, honestly, it's not. we're not exaggerating. He, when he slams him up against the wall because he's freaking out about rats in the underground... And he's just literally, he's, he's grabbed him by the head, and then he's just literally, he's rubbing his little earlobe. Hey, Durkin. <laughs> hey, Durkin. I wish I knew how to quit you. <laughs> um, Different film. Let's just talk about his apartment real quick. Yes, his apartment's, his apartment's hilarious. This is, an ex- this is a perfect example of overdoing a concept to the point that it becomes hilarious. It's obviously set up. So boy. It's obviously set up to make us believe, you know, this is a man who's in a deep depression, who isn't really caring for himself anymore. Yeah. Uh, but it's ridiculous. It's it's <laughs> filled pigeons. with roosting pigeons who keep attacking Kim Cattrall. Yeah. He has literally stuck chocolates to his fridge door <laughs> instead of <laughs> magnets. Yeah. Like. Just chocolates. Yeah, how just do you even? The chocolate to melt how do you it? melt chocolate to a fridge? It's cold. <laughs> um, he hasn't clearly hasn't washed the dishes in forever. No, he rests his and feet on a V twin engine that at, he just happens yeah. to have out. Well, why has he got a? Mo- did you not? Know, he's on the. He's on the fourth floor. Yeah, how do you get the? How bike do you get the there? bike up there? We never see an elevator. No, it's true. We only ever see the staircase. The it's a Harley. It's not even a sports bike. How yeah, do you get it up the bloody stairs. Um, and he's just got a a sink full of dirty dishes, um, including a mouldy cup of coffee that he then drinks from. Yeah, like yeah. just you didn't need all that. You just needed, say, the clutter and the dirty sink. Yeah, you didn't. You didn't need <laughs> roosting pigeons. Here's the thing: like when he said, "I'm oh, sorry about the pigeons. I couldn't. I couldn't kill them." Right? I thought that meant like when I first watched it, my first thought was, oh, "Okay, he couldn't kill them." At first, that just looks like he's sentimental, but because of the way this guy is, what it will be is that he knows that the pigeons will be able to tell when the monster's coming in some way. Right. Like I, I thought that he would, you know, be like, as soon as they start to fly away, where are the birds? That means something's going down, you know, because they will only leave if they're in imminent danger, right? Good idea. Something like that would have worked. So when I was watching it, I was like, it must be that. Right, I've clocked it. But it's not. Nope, that never, it just never comes back up. They're just there. <laughs> You're like, oh, all right. And that's that happens with a lot of things in this film. Mm. You're like, you, you did exactly what I did. Because the reason I asked you halfway through watching, I was like, so what do you think is going to, and you were like, oh, clearly what's happening is that this guy is just imagining it all and either he's the demon or it's all in his own head right and i was like yeah cool and it's like because that's exactly where my head went because it's clearly set up for that it's clearly set up that this guy is nuts yeah but everything points to that from the way he acts to the way um the way there's the soft focus in certain scenes yeah now to be fair maybe that is the original ending because as we as we saw in the production notes the end the whole like final climax of this film was apparently rewritten like 12 times yeah i reckon there probably was a version at one point where where it turned out to be in his head yeah, he, because it's completely unbelievable that Durkin survives getting shot in the chest as well. Yeah, because he gets shot point blank with a shotgun and falls out of a fourth story window. Uh, I think they'd gone down a couple of flights, but it's still second story. Yeah, and yeah, enough. and yet he he comes back in the next scene and just goes, "What you never heard of a bulletproof vest?" It's like, yeah, here's the thing with bulletproof vests that I think filmmakers always forget: bulletproof vests will save your life from bullets. That is what they're for. The problem is, is they it's not like bang, oh, oh, that was a bit of a no, they. You often break your ribs. Yeah, it just doesn't kill you. And they can only take so many shots as well. You can't just end. Not this. That's not this film. But some films you'll see them just endlessly firing into them. Yeah, and they're like, like, no, they don't work. Thank God I had the armor on. Yeah. (laughs) To be fair, I'm not sure a standard police. I'm not sure a standard bulletproof vest would withstand a point blank shotgun. No. And the other thing as well is we don't see him wearing the vest. Now I understand that the idea is that that's the bait and switch. The interesting part of that was that's the bit where you start to think he must be nuts. Yeah. this guy's come back and he's fine. Like, there's literally yeah. not a bruise. Doesn't even look like he's fallen two yeah. stories. And in fact, he's kind of mocking Stone out of the blue. And that's kind of like his own psychosis mocking him. That all. I really do reckon a... there was an ending where it turned out. Do you think that would have been a better ending than the monster? Um. Yeah. The problem is that's such a standard ending with indie films now. Yeah. Um, that's probably why it got changed. And. The problem with that sort of ending is when it's done badly, 
it's, it's really, really bad. Yeah, it doesn't um, feel at all, does it? It probably is better just having the actual monster, because at least it's funny. I just wish the monster looked better and was shot better, like not in bright light like that. Yeah, I think what they should have done was they should have signposted a few things. Not necessarily have it as obvious as like, right, I'm putting on my I'm putting on my uh, bulletproof jet vest now, Stone. You know, it's like he can wear it underneath, but there should be some sign where we see him zip up or do up his tire and we see the bulletproof vest underneath and it's just subtle. Any little thing to kind of give away that actually this guy's thought ahead. Yeah. But we don't get that. He doesn't think ahead by this point. Uh, And these are all the, again, this is the things where if the script had a little bit more time in the oven, these are obvious plot discrepancies that could have been fixed in a rewrite. Um, But as they are, like, you and I have just overthought the film. Yeah. I enjoyed overthinking this film, though. Yeah. Yeah. It's, (laughs) oh man, it's definitely a weird one. I'll give you that. I can't say it wasn't. I promise you, weird. Yeah, I delivered. I can't say it was boring. <laughs> no, absolutely not. Um, so it sounds like we're both kind of middling on the film. Um, I still enjoy the film. Um, I think it, it's not going to sell to anyone pretentious, uh, but I think anyone who enjoys something different and a little bit quirky, I think this would sell to. Um but you would have to be basically going in knowing that it's not a sterling film. Yeah. I, I actually don't think there's that much discrepancy other than style between someone who might enjoy this and might enjoy Detention. Yeah. Because they're both zany enough that they go... Detention is more comedy and it succeeds more at what it's trying to do. But both of these are zany and kind of go off the point where you're like, hang on, what the fuck? Yeah. They both have that what the fuck quality to them. Yeah. And I think for that reason that there's a similarity in audiences um, for people who long-term would like it. Detention has the benefit, though, that teenagers will watch it because it's a teen film as well. Yeah. And newer. Yeah, and whereas this film is is very much not. Uh, Yeah, this is not going to be playing in college dorm rooms (laughs) up and down the country. I can imagine film students watching this style on like a... So something we used to do at uni was like a bad film night. Yeah. Where we'd all get together and watch like, I don't know, the giant leech men from Mars or whatever. (laughs) I mean, this is is ripe for debate as like what certain things mean, whether certain things were intentional or whether they were not. This is the thing in it. Isn't it funny how certain films, even though there is that that scope for debate within them mm. as a whole people just write them off yeah as no 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 that's stupid we're not talking about it yeah and I, I think this film definitely fits in that category there is a lot if you if you're interested in film discussion this is absolutely a good film to watch for well, that they, but you're not watching a creme de la, you're yeah. not watching schindler's list and discussing it's weird, that though, isn't you're watching it? something that may be your bag or yeah. may not be it's weird i think but, i think this is something we agree on but we we both know people in the film crowd who are like that where it's like only certain films are worth uh, talking about in that sense yeah but i've always been of the mind that either it's all worth talking about or none of it is yeah i agree with you Um, because even something shit like i don't know mega shark versus giant octopus or whatever yeah um yeah that's garbage but it's still a work of creativity so video game earth force yeah it's worth talking about it's garbage that is real garbage um but somebody tried yeah somebody tried and god bless them they should never try again Bob but do you know what i mean yeah someone (laughs) did sit down and go i think i've got a story to tell yeah so fine let's look at it let's talk about that story yeah yeah uh but i think sometimes some films have more interesting things to talk about of course yeah this film is very much a talk this is a debate film Uh, that that's how i'd view it if you're into if you're if you have friends who you like to discuss films with, mm. you must watch this film mm. because it is well up for debate, different interpretation, different things you think it succeeds at or fails at and what you think those interpretations might mean and whether or not you're just overthinking the damn thing. Yeah. Because, th- that, again, this survives on the fact that there is no pretension in it. So certain films, I don't want to say Kubrick, but I mean Kubrick, there are some films, and I love Kubrick, I know you don't, but... Um, 
there are some times where people I think look too far into Kubrick films mm. more so than maybe he did on yeah. some films not all films some films he really did think about other films I don't think he did as much Doctor Strangelove uh, and people see more depth in them than there actually is yeah. And it, but you can't question it it seems in a film circuit because that, well, it's a Kubrick can't question of course it's brilliant it's yeah. a Kubrick uh, whereas this doesn't have that pretension to it so it seems to be a lot more accessible for people looking to debate and argue the merits and the, the, the qualities of certain aspects of the film. Yeah. So as a debate feature, you're not going to get anyone's backup like you would with, say, a Kubrick or, or a Hitchcock or something like that. You're going to be able to get that debate in there and have an interesting conversation without anybody hitting their high horse and going, how could you say that about a Rutger Hauer movie? <laughs> <You know? laughs> I'm sure there's a hardcore Rutger Hauer fan club out there. Somewhere. Oh, yeah. I mean, I've watched RPG, so I know that not everything that man touches is gold. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that probably brings us to the end of Split Second. Why was it called Split Second, actually? What does that have to do at all? Well, because initially it was a buddy cop horror movie. Then they wanted to put some cyberpunk in it. And went, well, that's a split second movie. And then they went, all right, we'll just call it that. I made that up, but that could be as fucking accurate as the It might story. as well be. It might as well be. <laughs> I don't know why it's called split second. It doesn't say why in the trivia because it did have different names. Yeah. Well, it was at one point it was called, like you said, the pentagram, stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Things Even... actually connect to the story of the film. Yeah. But nothing happens in a split second in this film. Yeah, like and time I was, is never one of the main features. Yeah, I was expecting time, like I said, flooding or something to yeah. be a factor. But yeah, no, it oh never well. comes up. It's it's like the whole thing being filled with water. It's a cool thing, good name, doesn't mean anything. Yeah. <laughs> well, there you have it, folks. That is our second look at Split Second. Uh, thank you for joining us and listening uh, to us talk about this obscure film from ye old year of 1992. Uh, please do follow us, like us, subscribe, share with your friends, etc., etc. I've lost. Uh, if you could pretty please write us a review. Uh, reviews are hugely important in gaining new listeners for shows and helping us get up the charts. Uh, if you want to hear us talk specifically about about video game movies you can listen to our other show vgmp the video game movie podcast uh which releases bi-weekly uh every other saturday uh and is currently in the middle of its fourth season yep. well actually by the time this airs we'll probably be more like at the end of its fourth season but still you get what i'm trying to say we've, pa- we've uh, passed 50 or 60 episodes by the time this comes yes, out yes we will um And I think that's all there is to say on this lovely sunny day. So, until next time, ladies and gentlemen, that's a wrap.